right. pina coladas, and natural wine making. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Make America Grape Again podcast, produced and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk. In this podcast, we explore wines from all 50 states in the United States of America. Hello, welcome again to the Make America Grape Again podcast. I'm your host, Cody Burkett, CSW. I've got two people here with me today. The rest of the regular gang is gone, but that's their loss. Uh, today's topic, we're going to be talking about natural wines and where to find them. So I had to do the Harry Potter-esque type reference there, I guess. Natural wines and where to find them. <laughs> we're here with uh, Timo. What's your last name again? Geis. Timo Geis. And Elizabeth Cricker is back again. Nice to see you all. I was going to be like, say something, Elizabeth. <laughs> so we have here in front of us a, a fantastic stash of... Six wines that uh, arguably in some way can all be called natural, and we're going to talk about what that exactly means as a concept. What makes natural wine different? Is it a concept in and of itself? Because uh, some people are like, natural wine isn't a thing, or we've been doing wines this way for 100 years, why is it called... 100 years. For 10,000 years! Okay, that's an over-exaggeration. Why do we have to call it natural now? Type thing. Anyway, wine number one. Has a cork. Um, I'm not a cork. I'm sorry. Uh, crown cap. Crown cap. Thank you. <laughs> I, I love having crown caps on wines. Some people hate it, but my thought is if I lose a bottle opener, I can get this bottle open with my keys. <laughs> and uh, you can't, it can't be corked from the cork. Exactly. Uh, if it's going to be corked, it's going to be from the bottling line or something of that sort. Or and, some problem in the cellar rather than the cork. Exactly. And it's got really pretty bubbles coming up. It yeah. does. Yeah, it looks delicious. So this is the Channing Daughters North Fork of Long Island Petalant Wine. This is 100% Gewürztraminer. From... From the North Fork of Long Island AVA. Have you ever had anything from the North Fork of Long Island? I have never had anything from the North Fork of Long Island. I don't think I have either. So this is a total treat. So this comes from uh, Len Thompson's Cork Report Club. So again, thanks Len for another wine for this podcast. I'm pouring this horribly, but there's so much fizz. But it looks so beautiful. Whoa! Oh my goodness. I haven't had this good since I was dating anybody. <laughs> Sorry. So this is a beautiful color. It's just very rich in gold. It's got, looks like it's got some green highlights. Lots of bubbles. Give me like apples and... What is this other thing I'm smelling? So Gewürztraminer from Alsace um, is very common for tropical fruits, lychee, and flowers. Um, when you put your nose to the glass with the bubbles and the carbonation, it kind of mutes a tiny bit, but I think the more we let this open up, we'll be able to smell more of those notes, and especially on the palate, you'll get a lot of that tropical. And the palate is super tropical. Beachy, pineapple, uh, star fruit. This really actually is opening up. Boy, you got beautiful aromas. Very tropical. Gerotsamino is one of the noble grapes in Alsace, which is northeastern France. 
And theory has it this grape isn't actually from France, but it's from Alto Adige, which is the mm -hmm. northern region in Italy, um, bordering the Alps. This is an exquisite wine. These folks totally rocked it when they made this. So can you tell us how Petalant is made? I'm going to let Timo field this one because this is arguably the most popular style of natural wine right now. Of course, yeah. Um, so Petnat is short for Petit en Naturel, which means naturally sparkling. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially uh, the same style of wine. Sorry, buddy. This guy's just been trying to, to get at me. Come on, Pippin. It's the same Pippin. style of wine um, that's called Method Ancestral. Okay. And that style of wine was actually created in Limoux, which is in the Languedoc-Roussillon region of France, mm -hmm. uh, by the monks at the, the monastery there. And actually, side, side story real fast is Dom Perignon was on his Camino de Santiago de Compostela, which is uh, one of the pilgrimage walks. And then um, he ended up going into this monastery mm -hmm. where he found that people were making sparkling style wines and he had no idea. He'd never tried anything like that before. So he kind of got like the, um, the recipe essentially and brought it back to Champagne and modified it so that it would be secondary fermentation and created Champagne. Oh, wow. So he was inspired by the style, which was called Method Ancestral, which is essentially a pet nat. Uh -huh. So a pet nat is when you're fermenting your wine before the tail end of fermentation, when there's about 10 to 12 grams of residual sugar left, they will bottle the wine with a crown cap or with a cork from like how they used to do it and allow the fermentation to continue in bottle. And uh, once the fermentation is essentially complete in bottle and there's no more yeast for the sugars to consume, they'll disgorge it and then continue. Once they disgorge it, they'll refill it with some of the same wine and then crown cap it. Okay. So what you're doing essentially is when you open it, say if you have 500 bottles, you're probably going to lose about 80 because you got to open them, some comes out, and then you got to refill them with the same wine. Okay. So it's, I guess it's called naturally sparkling, um, but there's many different ways of doing uh, pet nats, but this, when you call a wine pet nat, it technically has to be a wine that was bottled at the end of primary, or I'm sorry, at the end of secondary fermentation, so that the fermentation can continue in bottle. And that's essentially what they've done here is they'll have a, a whole tank of wine or this is probably done in tank, not in barrel. And then when it's almost done, bottle it, crown cap it. And then you wait for all of the yeasts to be consumed and then you'll have them at the very top of the bottle depending on if you have it upside down and then you have to disgorge it. And this one, again, of course, if you're having a secondary ferment in the bottle with the second bit of yeast, then of course there's still going to be uh, sediments on the bottom and we can see there's well some of this might be tartrate crystals it doesn't look like tartrate it looks more like it could be lees yeah or lees in tartrate crystals i think is what we've got going on why don't you take a look yeah those look like tartrate crystals to me those are not yeasts or anything there is definitely some some sediment down there but the way they've like gucked up together I think you're right on the tartrate crystals. Okay. But there are some that will have a yeasty, either yeasty character or will have yeast. Mm -hmm. um, the diamond pet nat that I had a while back, uh, that was 
Uh, there was some yeast in the bottom of that. So I know very little about this winery other than that it's the North Fork of Long Island. Basically what this says on it is exactly what Timo just talked about. This wine is bottled at the end of its wild fermentation before it is complete, trapping the carbon dioxide in the bottle, resulting in a lightly sparkling or petulant wine. This is a delicious, aromatic, and playful bottled wine. Drink very cold and enjoy. Uh, from Shannon Daughters. And honestly, yeah, this is, this is fun. It's got apples starting to come out now, too, on the palate. And yeah, and it's off dry as well. Compressed is common to be a sweet wine in Alzheimer's, but you can get dry styles. But I feel like because of its nature of being fruity, it might surprise people for having some residual sugar. But I feel yeah. like I can taste it on the end of the palate. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think there's at least 1% residual sugar here. Not much, but enough to make it just kind of a little bit sweet. I'm going to pair this with Pad Thai, mm. which I know is the classic of Ritz-Germiner pairing. Oh, it's phenomenal. To but, do it with uh, spice, slightly it's, spicy food. It's a, it's, things are classic for a reason. Yeah. And people want to poo-poo, oh, this is classic and a boring pairing. Well, it's like, I'm sorry, people pair this with the, that combination because it works. It's not a bad thing for it to be a good pairing, if that makes any well, sense. And if we can just dive into the natural wine topic. Of course. That, um, no, we can't. Wine, That's not at all what this podcast is about. Not at all. <laughs> Um, but natural wine, the community that's been growing for a while, I guess, mainstream is all about inclusivity and not being elitist or pretentious or all of the above. So natural wines can be paired with any kind of food. And it's not supposed to be like um, just for a specific kind of group of people who can yeah. afford it. I mean, natural wines naturally are going to be more expensive than your grocery store wine. Mm -hmm. But it's trying to shatter this preconceived notion that wine is for a specific group of people. Yeah. So if we wanted to pair this with some great Thai food or even like a, a spicy, like chili hot dog or something, like it doesn't matter. You How can about do it with fish anything. and chips? Fish and chips. This would be good with fish and chips. <laughs> and actually... This would also, I think, work with the Sonoran hot dog. Exactly. Because a little bit of spice with the residual sugar would balance out yeah. really well. My favorite pairing with an Alsatian off-dry Gewürztraminer is um, a spicy Indian curry chicken. Ooh. Ooh. Like yellow curry. That's my favorite. Stop trying to curry favor. <laughs> <laughs> this, I think this would be really delicious with salad too. It just tastes like it would. It's so light and bright, like with a nice light salad with a nice kind of soft, creamy dressing. I'm also thinking there should be uh, I'm uh, a good handful of pine nuts in that salad too. Ooh, yeah. Because I think that this works well with that sort of creamy umami of the pine nuts. Uh huh. And the kind of subtle flavors that pine nuts have. Yeah. Uh, if we want to do southwestern local, you know, just go out into the woods, get some pinion pine nuts, mm -hmm. and just grab a handful of them and just pop them down while you're drinking this. Or get Chris at Merkin to come up with a salad combo. Maybe some arugula, which is my favorite vegetable because it sounds like an old fancy hor uh, car horn. <laughs> arugula! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pet nuts are great by themselves or with food they're just fun and mm -hmm. good to drink delicious most of them are lower alcohol but not all of them are but yeah, yeah they're just good to drink at any time any day well these folks are really into sustainability as well i just looked them up on the way 
So they're founding members of the Long Island Sustainable Wine Growing Mm. Organization, which is an independent third-party certified sustainable viticulture program. And um, they were apparently, they worked in concert with Cornell Cooperative Extension of Suffolk County Cornell University and a group of Long Island grower winemakers to create this independent third-party program. Hmm. So that's how it got started. Channing Daughters were on the ground floor of the whole process. That's really cool. So it's based on the Cornell's Vine Balance Grower Self-Assessment Workbook, which sounds very heady. But it's a set of over 200 best management practices. So you have to really work to be part of this program. But I understand, um, thanks to Lisa Aguilar at Southwest Wine Center, who, who explained all this to me, that sustainable wine growing is a lot more than, I mean, it's organic, that's important, biodynamic, that's important, but it's also recycling, organic nitrogen use, cover crops, it's all of the things that make a vineyard and a winery healthy and sustainable. Have they figured out a cover crop for the college yet? They're still experimenting. One of the challenges in Arizona, in particular with cover crops, is we don't have much rain in the winter, really anywhere in the state. So um, they've been experimenting with natural grasses so I don't know if they figured one out yet, but I know that that's what they've been doing. Okay. Yeah. So one is opening up even more, and there's almost like this flinty, ashy, like crushed limestone dust character. Absolutely. Along with um, the more tropical fruit notes and apple, and it's so fragrant. This is really beautiful. The vets to me now hardly know her. <laughs> He's the master of puns. I try. <laughs> I think this is actually the very first full Gewürztraminer we've had on the Make America Grape Again podcast. I think there was one wine from the state of Georgia that had Gewürztraminer in the blend. But as far as I'm aware, this is the first full Gewürztraminer. So how did you get your hands on this wine? So uh, there's this fantastic wine club run by Len Thompson uh, of the Cork Report. An association with uh, this really fantastic bottle shop in New York called the Cellar d'Or. And it's one of the few East Coast wine clubs that sends to Arizona. And I've been friends with Len on Facebook for a couple years through wine stuff. And I was like, hey, when are you, when are you getting your club shipped to Arizona? And he's like, not yet. We're working on it. We're working on it. And then finally he's like, oh, we did it. And I'm like, cool, sign me up. <laughs> uh, and basically it is... Um, four bottles every other month from like his hand-picked like best of okay north eastern and eastern wineries so this one was a bubbles package mm-hmm. uh this one the diamond a blanc de blancs and a pinot noir rosé were all in that package as I've mentioned to you before, we're also doing a Cabernet Franc podcast based on one of his boxes mm-hmm. for uh, Cabernet Franc of the uh, Mid-Atlantic, mm-hmm. uh, plus two or three other bottles uh, that I picked up. Uh, one from Rhode Island that I uh, was lucky enough to be friends with uh, the winemaker there at Greenvale, and uh, one from Old Westminster, which is currently sitting at my godparents' house because they didn't get it shipped to, uh, delivered to my, the house where I was staying in time for me to bring it back. And then one from, uh, Linganort Wine Cellars, because I happened to meet the, the daughter of the winemaker and who's big in their social media and 
we really hit it off, and she's like, I'm going to give you this and uh, the Saparavi, which I was really excited for. Because she's like, I managed to convince our winemaker to let one go. Oh. <laughs> because they were all out, except for like a case. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Oh, darn. <laughs> but uh, she wants in on that podcast, so that's going to be uh, an interesting one to record, because while all of us who are in that episode will be drinking these bottles here... We're going to have, ideally, Len and Liz also talking about the wines on their end. Oh, how fun. Um, obviously, they well, Len, Len might be able to drink all the same bottles that we're drinking, mm -hmm. but Liz won't be able to drink all of them. Okay. <laughs> but anyway. Well, I really love this wine. I could just sit here and drink this all the yeah. rest of the day. I suppose we should maybe try the next one? We should. And uh, I'm trying to figure out a way if I can seal this. Um, I actually have a sparkling wine seal. If you want one. Oh, handy? Yeah. Well, let's do that. Yeah. Goodbye. Goodbye. Wait, I live here. There you go. Chug it. That's true. Wine shots. Just got to make sure you have enough of a palate left to taste the next one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I have coffee for that as well. well most importantly, taste all of them. We have some really delicious wines in front of us. Oh, I know. So next up, I... White Rhino from Flores Wines. Uh, this one is um, what a lot of people would call a fully a, a natural wine because it's zero zero, which means nothing added, nothing taken away. Okay. Oh wow. So there's no added sulfites and. Um, being a natural wine distributor and importer, there is, I know there's a lot of um, people who, wines that claim to be natural or not natural, and just in the community that I'm in, there is uh, a few prerequisites that classify a wine being natural. Uh -huh. The first being it has to be grown organically, sustainably, or biodynamically. Mm -hmm. The next prerequisite... Now, what uh, do each of those terms mean and how do they differ from one each, one and another? For example, uh, a winery can be sustainable and biodynamic, but can a biodynamic winery also be unsustainable? Or, or Biodynamic is the top of that pyramid. So biodynamic is altogether the most sustainable, all organic, and it's an ecosystem that thrives upon itself. Organic can be a certification where you're not using certain chemicals. And then sustainable is pretty much just trying to minimize using certain chemicals. So sustainable is the, the bottom, then you have organic, and then you have biodynamic. Mm -hmm. The next prerequisite for natural wine is that it has to be fermented on native yeasts or the wild, wild yeast. It has to be a spontaneous fermentation. And then the third part is that you cannot add anything to the wine other than at least... SO2 within a week or a month of bottling. So no lowering the pH or anything, no adding uh, acid, mm -hmm. nothing. Just mm -hmm. SO2 is the only addition you can make. So those are the three main prerequisites. It has to be at least sustainable grapes or organic grapes or biodynamic grapes. Mm -hmm. It has to be fermented on the wild yeasts spontaneously. And then all you can add is SO2 and in very small quantities. So it's grown sustainably with very minimal intervention essentially what it is. There we got four glasses here. Oh, that's still like the birds from you. <laughs> we yeah. have three glasses each. So if you 
want to keep some in your glass to sh compare with another, you can do that. So we'll have the so three whites first and the three reds second. I don't know French, and I'm going to butcher this. On voit de nez, quand on boit de yeux. So very close. Um, it's on voit du nez comme on boit des yeux, which essentially means we see with our nose like how we drink with our eyes. Oh. And uh, James Jalks is the winemaker from Flores Wines. He is a 30-year-old winemaker who went to UC Davis and got his bachelor's in viticulture and enology, and he spent time working at several vineyards in the U.S., but also in Beaujolais in France, and that's where he picked that up from, is a winemaker who taught him that exact phrase, on voit du nez comme on boit des yeux, we see with our nose like how we drink with our eyes. And it just stuck with him. Uh, but this white wine is a Grenache Blanc. And it is from a certified CCOF organic vineyard, which is located on the foothills of the eastern side of Northern California Coast Ranges. The soils are pinkish gravelly alluvial soils, permitting good drainage, which is essential to quality wines. This is a classic warm California climate, and Grenache Blanc and Noir thrive there. They utilize some unique canopy work to protect fruit from overexposure. They keep things diverse with fruit trees, olives, and bees on site. And when you keep those kinds of things, that's more in alignment with biodynamics because you have a thriving ecosystem. This is a certified organic vineyard with certain biodynamic principles. Mm -hmm. um, so this wine was actually made with whole cluster, pre pressed gently, so it wasn't macerated at all. It was just a long, gentle pressing. Oh, nice. Yeah, and the juice was sent to, the juice was sent full solids to stainless steel. A healthy native fermentation and natural malolactic fermentation ensued, and he left the wine intentionally surly. I this love was, surly whites as a tangent, sorry. Yeah, it's delicious. Uh, this was left untouched for five months and pre-bottle racking. No additives, unfined, unfiltered, zero, zero. So this is like the quintessential definition of a natural wine. Okay. That is really something. And they're obviously very committed to that because they're going into that level of detail to tell you about it. Well, yeah, I mean, James Jelks and Flores Wines, um, he is a very cult winemaker already. Mm -hmm. uh, all of his wines are sold in just four states, California, New York, Arizona, Oregon, and actually Chicago, five states. But yeah, this wine for me has like notes, it's almost like a pineapple and coconut on the nose or even on the palate, like a pina colada. But it's, it's very unique and it's just clean and it goes down well. So when I hear people in Arizona saying that it's a natural wine, uh, most of the people that I sell wine to or work with in Phoenix um, don't believe that there actually is a single natural wine producer in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Because even if you're doing a wild fermentation, mm -hmm. if you're trying to achieve a 14 to 15% alcohol wine, or even 13, your pH is going to be out of whack and you're going to have to acidulate. And you're going to have to add things. And a lot of winemakers are doing that, but calling it natural. Okay. So I have a me and the community that I'm a uh, part of have more strict guidelines onto what natural wine is instead mm -hmm. of just calling it that for commercial reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that even uh, Ruin, um, I'm not sure exactly how all of the wines are made, but from what I hear, the only wine that he makes that is 
made was a spontaneous native yeast fermentation is the wild Syrah. He actually makes all of them now with spontaneous fermentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. The exception being the classic Syrah when that comes online. Yeah. Because the idea is they're using Rhone classic yeast. That's, yeah, so I'm learning every day. Like I said, I'm not exactly sure. I've never met him or been to the winery, but you I'm, really also curious to know, is... I'm also curious to find out if, um, if he's adding anything other than XO2. To my knowledge, no. No, he adds a little, just like you described, a little tiniest amount of SO2 at the end before bottling. And he uses, um, let's see, he uses typically very low sulfur use, no artificial additives, and wild yeast fermentation on all of his wines, like you said, except for the classic Syrah. Is he acidulating at all? I didn't ask about the situation, but to my knowledge, he's not. So I mean, he mainly makes wines for other people. That would be fantastic. Yeah. From... The, from what I've learned is that he is acidulating because to maintain a healthy balance of pH, our soils in Arizona are so high in potassium that if you're trying to achieve a 13 to 14% alcohol wine, mm-hmm. it's impossible from what I hear, but I don't know what his terroir is to not add acid. Yeah, I think in Sonoida it's a little bit different, and um, but not all of his wines are made from Sonoida. He makes wines with grapes I'm have to take a visit from him. It's for totally sure. worth having a conversation yeah. with him. You can, he can probably talk in depth with you about because, struggles he's having yeah. and you know advantages he sees and all of that. Very, it'd be very great. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to visit him and San Reckoner. Yeah. Um, but there is, I guess, uh, in the natural wine community in Arizona, there is a misconception perhaps of how he's making his wines because from what my understanding from Craig at Hidden Track is that the only one that is fermented with wild yeast spontaneously mm-hmm. without any additives is the wild Syrah. Well, when he first started making wine here, he was using regular yeast on most of the wines with except the exception, for the wild Syrah. That was the very first one he tried, and he had such success with it that he started branching out to all of his other varietals, and now he's at the point where all the room wines are made with natural yeast. That's great. Yeah. Fantastic. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, he's, and he was interesting because he... He said the real reason he doesn't even use the word natural wine is because there's no. he feels like there's no real definition of it. And um, he said his understanding is it's low sulfur use, no artificial additives, wild yeast fermentation, that those are kind of the critical pretty aspects. Pretty much it is, yeah. Sustainable yeah. organic fruit. Yeah, and that's what he does. That might be the problem is that some of these vineyards might not be certified organic. Well, none of the, I don't think any of them are There's certified. There's not a single certified organic vineyard in Arizona other than like a small one that is part of a wedding venue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or are you specifically talking about uh, Grand Creek? Grand so, Creek, yeah. So. yeah. Well, but but they what they tell me is that it's so arduous to get through the certification process that they may be practicing organic, but they just haven't taken the time or the money or whatever it takes to get through the cert. Because these are teeny tiny little vineyards and teeny tiny little wineries. And, you know, I'll, I'll listen to podcasts. Like, oh, yeah, we only make 5,000 cases a year. And I'm like, 5,000 cases? That's freaking huge. That's you know? like all of some wine <laughs> production. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, it's, it's, so it's kind of a different perspective in that sense. Like they're doing practicing biodynamic or practicing organic, but they can't really say it because they the money it takes to become certified is just one penny too many for their tiny little winery. Yeah, and a lot of winemakers yeah. in Europe, they are they think that Demeter, which is the certifying body for biodynamic principles, they uh-huh. think they're like a mafia because they charge so much Yeah. just so that you can have their logo on the label. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people who 
have it on the label, it's great because they can get more exposure and their wines can be more international. But a lot of the smaller producers who are more into like the local community, they are like, I'm not going to pay some big company so that I can mm-hmm. pretend my wine is something that it already is. Like, yeah. So there's, you know, there's a... And I, I hear, I mean, I hear of a lot of wineries, not a lot, not all of them, but quite a few wineries in Arizona are practicing organic, but they just can't tell people about it publicly. So it is what it is. It is what know? it is, yeah. Yeah. Like, for example, Jose Yempa, they're... Um, they only sprayed their vineyard once last year with a tiny amount of copper dioxide. Uh-huh. That was it. And a lot of natural wine too. Um, Arizona doesn't really allow for this as much, but dry farming is a huge principle. Yeah, yeah. and it's kind of hard to do in Arizona because it's very hard to do. <laughs> and we're getting all of our rain at the wrong time of year exactly. for dry farming, basically. Yeah. yeah. But it's, I bet you there might be a spot somewhere in Arizona where it could be possible, but it sounds like a huge challenge. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so this wine is just um, a great acid. It's zero zero. There's absolutely nothing added to it, and it is a certified organic vineyard. It's got little bubbles in it too. Little tiny. And unfined, unfiltered, as I mentioned. Fining and filtering. The nose is so muted compared to the palate too. Mm -hmm. It is right. It's very um, Grenache Blanc has always been more of like a calm, neutral grape. Yeah, that's true. It's really tasty though. I totally get what you were talking about with the coconut and pineapple, and on, pineapple the on the palate. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of like a pina colada. Kind oh, of, right? Pina coladas and natural wine making. <laughs> it has a really nice mouthfeel, too. You know, it's just very bright and crisp yeah. and light. The mouthfeel is a little round because of the surly aging. Okay. It doesn't feel as round as the Gorse demeanor. That had a much, to me, much rounder mouthfeel. Every this time you have some rounder. residual sugar, you'll have more body on the feeling. Okay, that makes sense. So if you ever drink like a sweet wine, even like let's say uh, a wine from Bordeaux, one of the sweeter wines. Okay. Sauternes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That will have a bigger mouthfeel because of the RS. Trying to figure out. I want to pair this with like almond cookies, like Italian wedding cookies. That is my immediate instinct with this wine. That does sound really good. It does. It sounds really tasty. <laughs> or, and this would take it out of the sustainability cat category. Um, maybe sea bass or a, or swordfish or, or some oceanic fish. Mm-hmm. Na- na- um, natural wine producers aren't against eating fish or meat in any way. Well, no, I mean, I, that's not what I'm saying. It's just if we're talking about sustainable industries in in terms of food production, oceanic fisheries is like the least sustainable one out there. Mm-hmm. Period. I, was, I was not aware of that. Yeah, um, which is why I don't really eat sushi anymore or, or uh, ocean wild-caught fish because... They're just basically, it's like strip mining the ocean. Yeah. It's, it's so sad. It's horrifying. Mm-hmm. But uh, most of my fish, if I get fish, are not wild caught. Just to kind of do my part. Because there's just so much seafood here available in central Arizona in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a hard thing to be a part of. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I used to live in Maine, so um, I'm still connected with people there. And one of the things that's really interesting is that with global warming, the lobster are kind of moving north. Well, that means there's more lobster in Maine than there have ever been before. 
Isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah. So there's like, they have no idea what to do with all this lobster. They have so much lobster. I like lobster. <laughs> you know, I've actually never had lobster. <gasps> oh. Sounds like you have something to do after this podcast. Eventually. <laughs> I don't know that we'll find any lobster worth worth eating here in, in Cottonwood, but... Yeah, that's one problem with Arizona. <laughs> but uh, that's another thing that, I, you know, I'd like to... The exception to this is if I'm actually on a seacoast and it's literally like, hey, we caught this today through some sort of sustainable or more sustainable method than, you know, giant gill nets. It's like, yeah. okay, then I'll partake of this fish. Um, I love that label. That's just so ridiculously crazy. It's also Japanese woodcut art. Oh. So it's a very time-consuming process for each of those to be printed. Um, it's James's friend who does that for him designs all of his labels and this is the 2020 vintage that's why i decided to bring a zero zero wine just because this is complete the maximum minimal intervention yeah mm -hmm. nothing added at all and all the other wines that are um in this natural wine realm that i and other distributors sell like all it is is prerequisite spontaneous native use fermentation and mm -hmm. minimal intervention mm -hmm. only thing you add is so2 mm -hmm. And it's possible to do. It's just, um, it's a lot riskier. So yeah. a lot of, especially in Arizona, a lot of these um, wineries need to be more cost conscious and they can't risk this because it's a huge investment to start a winery here anyways. And yeah. the cost of grapes are really expensive. Mm -hmm. And it's also a style that is um, not as appreciated by a lot of people. It's a very small niche market still. That yeah. is growing, obviously, but... Now, granted, if you were to open this in a tasting room and... Or just basically have it in a tasting room, or do what James does and just, you know, yeah, I'm not going to tell people that technically this more or less qualifies as natural. I'm just going to let people taste it and try it. They might gravitate towards that more than anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that sense, you know, if it worked and it didn't go wrong, uh, then for sure, then that could be repaying that. And, you're, and with that point, um, a lot of the old school producers in Europe are doing things um, since they've had their wineries there for many generations. And for example, DRC, which is Domeni Romani Conti, mm -hmm. the most expensive Pinot Noir in the world, that's all spontaneous native use fermentation and minimal intervention. But he's not saying I'm a natural wine. I'm a classic Pinot Noir, one of the best Pinot Noir yeah. wineries mm -hmm. ever, and I'm not going to try and market myself as a natural winemaker because this is how we've been doing it forever. So you do have that camp where they're like, I'm doing it that way, but I'm not going to just like try to join this hype train, Yeah, mm -hmm. which I understand too. Like I have respect for all classics or new wines, as long as it's made for me in a minimal intervention style, mm -hmm. then I'm happy with it. I don't care if it's marketed as natural, mm -hmm. but yeah, it sounds like a, uh, at Ruin, they're doing some pretty unique things. They yeah. really are. His um, his tasting room is all off the grid, and he's got these huge solar panels everywhere, and you sit outside. It's really fun. You sit outside, you've got this beautiful view, because where he bought his property, it's right next to, I actually don't know if it's Forest Service property or if it's um, BLM property, but it's no one's going to live there, so you just have this gorgeous view of these beautiful grasslands, plus the biscuit and all these you know, amazing mountains around it. It's really stunning. Cool. It's really, really classic. Yeah. yeah. I, that is the one thing I miss about being down in the Sonoida Bisbee area is basically visiting room. 
I need to make a trip down there. Yeah, you really do. Yeah. I'll, I'll get you his email address and contact information. I've already gotten it okay. from uh, Sarah, who works for, um, I think it's Action. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's trying to link me up with him. Definitely. It's really It's just so it. far. So whenever mm-hmm. I go to Tucson, I need to stay night over there and then make the trip, because it's even far from Tucson. Well, here's yeah. the thing. There's a casita that they have on Airbnb. Try to talk to them and be like, hey, is the casita available this week and I'll just crash there? They'll probably work with you on something on that. Cool. Yeah, yeah. There's quite a few Airbnbs in the area, actually. And it is worth it to spend the night. I've done it in an entire one day before. That was a lot of driving. Yeah. Yeah, was. <laughs> so, but it's definitely worth spending the night down there. But it's definitely worth the drive and the time. What do you guys think about pairing? Uh, what would you pair with uh, the white rhino? Do you know why he called it the white rhino? Uh, I do not actually. You know, after talking about lobster, I would totally pair this with lobster because lobster's got a very light flavor. This has a very light flavor. I think, and it, this is kind of a little bit of saltiness to it. I'm not sure where that comes from. Oh, the coast, absolutely. I can Interesting. See that. Yeah, I think it would just be a beautiful pairing. I like it. Yeah. I'll go with it. So you're definitely going to want to load up the website for the next one, juntowine.com. Is it junto or is it junto? That's the question. I don't know. Uh, Since it's Nebraska, Uh I'm going to guess junto because it's Nebraska, not Arizona. There's much markedly less uh, Hispanic influence. And I'm wondering if this, um, uh, where it says our winery is uh, designed to embody the spirit of Ben Franklin's junto. I wonder what that is. I didn't think to uh, look that up. So, spoiler alert, we're, we're now moving to one of the last places where you would ever expect that they're doing natural wine, Nebraska. <laughs> that was perfectly odd timing there on the part of the uh, air freshener there. So, I got this when I was doing a Google search for wineries in Nebraska that shipped to Arizona. I ordered this at the same time I ordered the Chamberson from... Uh, Glacial Till Winery, which is not too far away. This is uh, in Seward, which I think is on the other side, north of Omaha, I think. Back on this. So is this wine fermented spontaneously off the native yeast? As far as I'm aware from what I, when I looked at their website then, uh, yes. Very cool. What a treat. I don't think I've ever had a wine from Nebraska. Ah, me neither. I've had a few, and actually, as far as Midwest states go, Nebraska's pretty good. Out of the two wineries I've visited in person and have tasted, one was amazing, one was okay. Um, if you want to load the uh, website up while I get this open. So, this is a... Skin Contact, excuse me, Pippin. Pippin, excuse me, I know you want to help. Skin Contact Vignoles. So Vignoles is a French-American hybrid that normally uh, is used to make sweet wine or late harvest wine. And my understanding is that this is fermented to dryness on native yeast. Yeah, he does on his website call his wines natural wines. I don't know if he calls all the natural wines though. But he calls, and so this one is made with vignoles? Vignoles. Vignoles. Ah, I need a different corkscrew. This one is not 
Wanting to cooperate. Does it have anything on there about Benjamin Franklin's Junto and what that means? So what it pulled up is the Benjamin Franklin Historical Society. Apparently Benjamin Franklin and a group of friends founded the Junto Club. Okay, let's see what it says. The idea was to debate questions of morals, politics, and natural philosophy and to exchange knowledge of business affairs. They just kind of mixed it all up in one big conversation back in 1727 huh. is when it was established. God, look at that color. I'm excited. I am a super geek and I love amber wines in general. This is really beautiful. So so how is this made? Skin contact. So it's a, it's probably like a white grape. It it's is. just left on the skins for an extended period of time. So is it a white grape that has pink skins or something? Nope. Because there's a lot of pink. Nope. Vignoles has regular orange colored skins. Look up vignoles. Okay. So when you do a skin contact fermentation, there is pigmentation on the skins, but the more you leave it in contact with oxygen, uh-huh. like if you cut an orange or an apple open and you leave it op- like out, mm-hmm. oxidation happens and it becomes slightly more orange. Okay. Oh, so okay. that's this very similar concept. concept. So, so you're not only making it the same style as a red wine, where you're leaving it in contact with its skins longer periods of time so that some of the pigmentation will actually show in color, but ox- oxygen's also playing a role. That makes a lot of sense. It's a lot more than just the skin. It is, yeah. But it's mainly the skins. Okay, so I've got vignoles in front of me. It's a complex hybrid that was made by crossing, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, it looks like a French word. I don't know if you know how to pronounce that. Soubereau? Soubereau, yeah. Soubereau? That's beautiful. It was crossed, Soubereau was crossed with Pinot Noir. Although there are apparently some doubts about this analysis, so it's still a little confusing exactly what was crossed with what, unfortunately. But it's late budding, which actually makes it a great grape for Arizona. Um... Uh, only one vineyard in the state is growing it right now, and that's um, Del Rio Springs. Interesting. So it's also early ripening. So both those two factors make it actually a fabulous grape for Arizona. It would be well worth investing in some vinoles. It's um, got low yields of smallish bunches of very small berries, and it's not susceptible. Oh, it is sus- susceptible to botrytis and to bunch rot. Okay, well, so is just about everything else, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, botrytis, I don't think anyone has ever done a noble rot vignoles, but then botrytis is only a noble rot in certain places. <laughs> it doesn't have much in the way of aroma. Although this was also, uh, this has been in the fridge for a while, so it's probably super cold. I just really love this color. It's like, it's like pumpkin orange almost, which is probably why he called this wine Skeletons. Yeah, it's got a really great taste though. I mean, it feels good on the palate. It's a little... uh, Oh, this is nice. Yeah, isn't it? This would be a great pairing wine. This would be good with fish, like salmon, like kind of... Bigger, bolder fish, salmon or swordfish. You can tell I like fish, and I know the world is overfished. 
but hopefully I can find fish that are not victimizing the oceans. <laughs> that is nice, yeah. It's got oxidative qualities, and I like how dry it is. It also has phenolics. Mm-hmm. And orange wines have more phenolic compounds and more grit because they were in contact with the skins more. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. It's Fine. funny that it doesn't have much aroma because the other two wines were also very cold, but the Gorstermine was very aromatic. But the Grenache Blanc wasn't really super aromatic either. But it had more aroma than this. <laughs> there was something there. This just really just kind of doesn't have any aroma. But it's not to take away from the wine because it's very delicious. And I really think this is a beautiful wine to pair with food because there's a lot of things. You, you could have chicken with it. I mean, there's a lot of things you could eat with it. Roasted chicken sounds really wonderful with this wine. Cheeses, vegetables. This is another wine that would be good with salad. I'm also thinking maybe a chicken dish, too. Yeah. You know what would be good with this? I actually brought some chips. Ooh, I, I did. I, brought, I, I was hungry, so. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Those might be really delicious. And I brought them with a beet pickle hummus. So it's just a little light dip. So I'm on uh, the Ruin website, and most of the wines are fermented with wild yeasts. Mm -hmm. But not all of them are. There might be a few that aren't, maybe. This, this uh, Cunois specifically, I don't think is, but the Grenaches and the Syrahs are. He actually told me that it was. So it could be he made it another year and it wasn't, or he just didn't bother to write it. Yeah, because he's writing it for all the ones that he does do them on. Uh-huh. Is that the 2018? Yeah. Yep. No, actually, actually, come to think of it. No, it is 2018. Oh, it is 2018? Okay. But sweet potato chips and sweet pickle, um, sweet beef pickle hana sounds really delicious with these, this wine. Yeah, it's very, I like the oxidative qualities of this wine. I also feel like Vignoles does not get enough love. And so many people associate Vignoles with making sweet white wines, either as, you know, quote unquote, panty dropper wines for girls to go, oh, this is great, I'm gonna buy a case, or for um, late harvest. But the few dry vignoles I've had, and this is now the third over the course of my entire life history of drinking wine, uh, it works great for dry whites and ambers. So that's one of the reasons why I picked this up. Also because I just freaking loved the name. It was nice and spooky. It appealed to my inner goth. Speaking of, dream wine to make would be a pet nat to not and call it Sparkle Goth. Sparkle Goth. I think you have a new life mission right there. You're welcome to do it. Please do it. I don't have the time uh, or the license. <laughs> I'm curious to try it with these chips now. It is really delicious with the sweet potato chips. It's a match thing in heaven. Did you try it with or without the dip? Or both? I, tried it, I just tried it with the dip. Okay. But you could try them without the dip too. I, I just ate, so I'm very full, but thank you. <laughs> I guess I'll have to try one to see just how the one. pairing is. Yeah. Well, just remember, nobody can eat just one potato chip. <laughs> oh, that is a really nice harmonious pairing. Isn't that tasty? 
Yeah, I think of the three wines we just tasted, I think this one is definitely one that screams for a pairing. I think the mm -hmm. other two, you could drink by themselves, you could drink them with food. Either way, you'd be happy. I think this one would pair really well with a pork chop. Mm. Oh, that's a good idea. You might even be able to do ribs with this, depending on the spices. Like if you do a Carolina style with that more mustard and um, vinegar based. Yeah. And I think this is going to work really well with that. Oh, that would be very tasty. Yeah. So uh, I'm currently also waiting for uh, an in-depth discussion of sewer geology from uh, my friend Kara, who is a geologist at the University of Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, it's about an hour. This winery is about an hour away from her in Lincoln. Okay. So, uh, but she knows, of course, geology there, son. What I might do... Is when that email comes through, I'll read it and then edit that back into this state. This point here. Anyway, so the bedrock is the Cretaceous Dakota Formation, but the winery website and the survey maps indicate that the vineyard is probably located on glacial till from the pre-Illinoian glaciation, which would date it to approximately two million to one hundred ninety-one thousand years ago. In Nebraska and the neighborhood state this glaciation likely changed the path of the Missouri River to its present flow direction. This pre-Illinoian till sequences contain a series of paleosols and seem mature being fairly clay-rich excuse me, Kippen, into decent soil. This also may help because the uh, Dakota is very iron-rich, and that probably helps the soil a great deal. And then she says, that's uh, the best I can give you right now. Well, thank you again, uh, Kara. You are a wonderful person. Well, I'm personally enchanted by all three of these wines. Yeah. I think all three of them are totally delicious. I love the stories about how they're made. I also love the fact that there is a pair of really cool geeky eyeglasses <laughs> on the Junta wine. Those are cool. So this gives the British pronunciation, which is actually not... Junto, it's Junto. Mm, but you in Spanish, it's Junto. Yeah, Spanish, would the, that would be the only difference, that you would pronounce the J as an H in Spanish, so it would be Junto, whereas in, in the English, the British pronunciation is Junto. So anyway, so there actually are So maybe it is Junto. Junto. Junto, Junto winery. Yeah. Lino, if only it was open right now, then I could give them a call. <laughs> but alas... So the Junto Club always met on Friday evenings. So we really should be having this podcast on a Friday evening. Maybe I can post it on a Friday. And we should talk about morals and politics and philosophy. Well, arguably all of this discussion about natural wine touches upon all of these. We've talked about the politics of getting certified, whether uh, biodynamically or uh, organically. Arguably... The best definition for natural winery involves the fact that it is a philosophy of, at best, you know, or not at best, but like no additions, no subtractions, letting the wine do its own thing. In a sense, it kind of makes sense that a natural wine winery would be called this. Yeah, it does. Which I, I think is really interesting and a very astute name. So the Benjamin Franklin Historical Society has a whole list of questions that you're supposed to ask to guide discussions at meetings. Oh. 
really long list, but I'll give you a taste of a few of them. Yes. Have you lately heard of any citizens who are thriving well, and by what means? Hmm. <laughs> Arguably, I'm thriving much better than I was last year at this time. Which is an excellent thing to say. That's awesome. <laughs> what, what about, about you? you? Um, yeah, I think I'm doing fine. Yeah. You know, they can always be better, but I think um, I have nothing to complain about as we are all in a better situation than the majority of people yeah. on this planet who are living in real poverty. So I can't complain. I just got to remind myself of those things and keep working hard. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. We are so lucky. We really are. We're blessed, yeah. Mm -hmm. I am also thriving well, and I'm very grateful for it. So, what new story have you lately heard agreeable for telling in conversation? <laughs> wow, that is so old-fashioned word. I know, that's the way like, tell, us a, tell us a kid-friendly story. <laughs> um, so, shall we jump into the Reds? Let's do it. Yeah, uh, I'm going to see how this develops. Okay. But uh, you need to bring out your red pet nap. I do. Do you mind grabbing it from the fridge for us, please? I mind terribly. That's just so far. I can almost reach it from my chair. <laughs> I will recommend um, as soon as you open it to pour it. Okay. I just don't want any bubbles to spill on the, the table if that does happen. Okay. This is I'll fun. I'll bring my glass over here. So tell us all about this wine. I will. Yeah. Um, so so I, Cactus Crew is the name of the winery? or It is, yes. Grasavus. Grasavu means thanks to you both, which is just a thank you to my parents for just always letting me do a bunch of crazy stuff. <laughs> Making wine in my room. Um... <laughs> This was made in the, the studio that I'm living in. I, I moved back to Sedona for this analogy program during COVID. Um, I, we all didn't know what was going to happen, so I pretty much just committed to the year-long program. Uh -huh. And it's been, COVID was, restrictions were lifted a lot so, sooner than I expected, so I've been very busy trying to be a present in Phoenix and make wine and be in school uh -huh. and work at the bar. It's been very busy. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's just a thank you. And Cactus Crew is the name of the, the winery that I would like to someday begin. Okay. So this is not official. Like it's not on the TTB website or anything like that. No, yet. this is a homebrew. It's a homebrew. It's a beautiful label for a homebrew. Thank it's you. Yeah. I mean, I have, um, it's all trademarked and LLC'd and website domain and everything. Yeah. But it is a homebrew, so on the label it says this wine is not for sale just for legal reasons as well. Okay. Uh -huh. This wine is not for sale. <laughs> so is that your parents? Those are my parents. That's an 88 in France. Aww. So did your parents get you involved in the wine industry, or was that a personal path? So I'm born in France, and my, grandfather, my dad's from Alsace. Um, so my grandparents are very, they live in the AOC of Alsace. Wow. So I've always just had one in my life. And mm -hmm. as a six year old, I kind of had a collection of small barrels. I'd go to Marché Opus, which is a flea market. Okay. So I was kind of like into wine, but in college I worked at farm to table restaurants and got into wine. Uh -huh. And then near the end of college, I, um, started doing my Psalm studies and I got my level one and two. Um, within a year at the um, Court of Master Psalms. Oh, nice. 
And then I moved back to France in 2018 and did internships in Alsace at wineries. Uh-huh. At one winery, I'm sorry. It was uh, Domaine Botgale. They're like certified organic and they're all over Robert Parker's website. So yeah. a lot of people know them. Yeah. And then I uh, decided to start importing wine. So I moved back in 2019. Um, so my wine journey started in college pretty or I guess as a kid I was gonna say it sounds more like six years old yeah but I was never really like drinking it then or anything but I was like surrounded by it because it was always at the dinner table okay and then yeah I guess it started as uh, in college and then when I moved back to France I did internships and then started importing wine so then I would go to all these vineyards and wineries in Europe to create a portfolio and mm-hmm. make connections and worked with them for harvests and then COVID happened, and um, I was talked into joining the Enology program, mm-hmm. and then I ended up doing that, and here I am. So it's just a long road of, of winemaking. A long, circuitous or wine, path. Not even just winemaking. This is my first wine, but of just like being in the wine industry. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. Thank you. So yeah, this wine was made um, on sustainable grapes, essentially. They're not certified or anything, but they are doing pretty um unique project out there where um, i'm sorry where Casa Yampa in kirkland arizona oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So tell us about that project yeah yeah so i uh reached out to them went out to see them i have a connection with the owner who i was friends with his um son who passed away his son-in-law oh, i'm sorry not his son in his, his stepson oh wow that's so sad it was sad yeah and then um I let him know that I was like a SOM and that I had my distribution company and that I was in the program that mm-hmm. I wanted to make a small batch of wine. So they kind of worked with me to sell me a small amount of fruit. I bottled 155 bottles of this. So I was gifted, I was sold about 400 pounds. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to make a natural wine. So it was all spontaneous native use fermentation. Wonderful. It took That's about right. two and a half weeks. Um, it's all in tank. And then I wanted to actually make a pet nap. Mm-hmm. But since I had no idea what I was doing and I didn't have the glass, mm-hmm. it fermented so fast that I couldn't bottle it because I didn't have any glass. Okay. So I called these Italian producers I work with and they told me I could still make a sparkling wine called Calfondo, which is how they used to make Prosecco. Which okay. Made. So you essentially, after fermentation, after the two weeks, I called the vineyard manager and got um, him to sell me 40 pounds of extra grapes so mm-hmm. that I can kind of stop on them, leave them overnight, and then freeze the must. Okay. And then in, on March 18th, I rebottled it um, because I had unfrozen the must, let it start to re-ferment in one-gallon carboys. Uh-huh. And then reintroduced about 7% of the total volume of tank back in, which was the one-gallon, back into like the, the 53 liters that okay. I had. And then bottled it within three hours, which creates a secondary fermentation in bottle. But you have just the right amount, so you don't have to disgorge it. Uh huh. So this is um, how they used to make prosecco, and it's made with cabernet sauvignon. Oh, it's delicious! It doesn't taste like cabernet sauvignon. It tastes like I don't know something. It else. honestly makes me think <laughs> of Cunois more than cab. Yeah, because yeah. it's so light and bright. Yeah. A million years, I wouldn't have guessed cabernet sauvignon. I love the label too. That's such a great photo of your parents. It's very sweet. Thank you. It's really delicious, too. It's just nice and cold and fresh and sparkling. It's just, yeah, so um, this wine is actually, the pH and TA are at red wine levels. So the fizz, compared to the bubbles on the Gewürztraminer, they don't hold up as much because I have a pH of a 3.76 and a TA of 0.55. Mm-hmm. And those are perfect for red wine, but not correct for sparkling. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so 
next year I know what to do differently. It's just three and a half day maceration. Uh huh. Um, in order to maintain the pH and TA that I want, I need to at least do a direct press and not do whole cluster fermentation because mm -hmm. a lot of the potassium and phenolics are found through doing that. Mm -hmm. But um, that being said, it still is enjoyable. It's just more fizzy than it is sparkling. And um, I did submit the still version to this emerging winemaker competition. Oh, fun. And then they, I got second place at that. Uh, awesome. So that nice. Was cool. Awesome. That's but, very cool. Thank you. But it was, um, I realized that the levels through uh, the pH and TA weren't correct after doing wine labs with Michael Pierce. Okay. And then I was like, oh, should I just bottle it all still? And then the winemakers I talked to in Italy were like, no, just go for it. It might still be good. Yeah. Yeah, and, it is. Yeah, thank you. It's just like a light, low alcohol, fizzy wine. Mm -hmm. And my next attempt will be to do the same thing with the same grapes, except um, kind of to try to achieve the acid that I'm looking for. Okay. But yeah, like I said, nothing was added to this except for within a month of bottling, I added 30 parts per million. Okay. And of SO2? I, of SO2. Okay. KMS, yeah. And I racked twice. So there's no filtering, nothing. I just racked it with gravity from one tank to another. Mm -hmm. And that's it. It's just a fun, low alcohol, not pretentious, glue glue, which means glug glug. <laughs> okay. That was going to be my uh, question that I wanted to ask at some point as I hear about all these different styles on natural wine themed websites and it's like what is glau glau or glue glue now i know it's glue glue and it's glug glug <laughs> yeah it's just like you can just patio just pound enjoy it, it. yeah enjoy it. so basically it's what i would call or what in america we would call here porch pounder yeah well, i don't know why exactly suddenly porch said it in a vaguely southern pounder. accent but well, and especially because it's low alcohol i mean you could just drink this all day and not really get too tipsy God, you know? that'd be terrible uh, you could drink this to yourself and be fine. Feel a good buzz. It is 10.3% alcohol. Yeah. Um, but the pH in the soils at Hasayampa would not allow for you to make a natural wine unless you're trying to go for low alcohol. Okay. Okay. Because at 19 bricks, which I picked at, after going through primary, secondary, malolactic fermentation, it went from 3.3 pH all the way to 3.76. Wow. So that's perfect for red wine, but if they, if I was trying to just achieve the same red wine but 2% alcohol higher, uh -huh. the pH would have been at over 4, and yeah. I would have had to acidulate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's why I have a huge idea of this is the only terroir I've worked with. I'm not sure how it is in Sonoida, but uh -huh. when I hear that our soils throughout Arizona from Michael Pierce are have such high concentrations of potassium. It's yeah. hard for me to believe that wines are being made fully naturally unless uh -huh. um, they're acidulated. Yeah. Well, you'll have to talk to um, James. I think yeah. it's really wor a worthwhile conversation to have, and I'm sure there's a lot of philosophy. And he'll enjoy he that does. conversation. Yeah, yeah he no, he great James is a fantastic person like that. I'm actually really excited to meet James. You, yeah, he's... I miss James. <laughs> yeah, I really like him. He's a good character. But yeah, this is my first my first vintage, and I made 155 bottles of it. Mm -hmm. How fun! It was a good experience. Yeah, yeah. now I have like a more deeper understanding of winemaking and all the wines that I sell. I have way more questions to the winemakers I work with because I know an aspect that I didn't know before. Yeah. So it's very cool. I'm just I'm on a learning journey. I have so much to learn, and I'm just excited to continue to learn there is so much to learn when it comes to wine so my store is not unlike yours my um 
dad just got really into wine at a young his own young age mm-hmm. and my dad and mom married when I think he was 20 no he was 22 and she was 21 or he was 23 and she was anyway really young and I was like born right away so they were really young obviously I was really young and he felt like it was really important for his kids to know how to drink so we all got wine I don't even remember when it started honestly I don't remember ever not having wine with Sunday dinner but we always had wine with Sunday dinner we had about you know, an inch in the bottom of a glass. It wasn't really very much at all, but we always had wine with Sunday dinner. So I get to high school and everybody's drinking Boone's Farms and I'm like, this is crap. What do you want to drink this for? Because <laughs> he always drank really nice French wine. And back in the 60s and 70s, you could get really nice French wine, like Domaine Romani Conti for not that much. By, I mean, it was more expensive than regular wine, but it wasn't like it is now where it's astronomical. And um, so I was really, really, really lucky to grow up with the father that I grew up with. And um, anyway, so that's kind of my story. That's how I got into the wine industry, definitely Very as cool. a young kid. I thought everybody grew up that way, but obviously I was mistaken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, as I have told the story many times, but not to you. So for you, it's going to be entirely new. Um, I know you've heard it a couple times. I grew up watching Frasier, and I was a shy, geeky, nerdy kid who had no, in my world, uh, no one to sort of aim at and sort of sort of a, a television role model. If I had grown up being able to watch Star Trek, things would have been very differently, but uh, neither of my parents were really into sci-fi, and my mother controlled the remote control, so it was kind of, uh, <laughs> what can I watch that she won't uh, turn off immediately? For whatever. Oh, Frasier, okay, whatever. But, you know, Frasier and I also spend a lot of time talking about wine, drinking, drinking wine, drinking about wine, talking about drinking, talking about drinking wine and food pairings and opera. And, you know, some of these things I already liked, opera and, and fine literature and that sort of thing. So, you know, that was kind of my introduction to wine culture was through Frasier. And then what happened was uh, on a camping trip, one of my dad's crazy friends who was about as Italian as you can imagine, decided that he would make spaghetti in the field. And one of the things he brought to make the sauce from scratch was a bottle of Chianti. And basically everything in the sauce was made from scratch in the middle of the frickin' wilderness near Seligman. Um, not an improved campsite. It was crazy. And uh, pops open the bottle of uh, Chianti and takes a swig, pours about half of it into the sauce that he's making. And hands me the bottle and says, Cody, be a good lad and finish this off for me. So I go to my dad, because uh, I was a good kid, <laughs> and say, hey, dad, Dan gave me this bottle of Chianti to finish off. Can I? And dad's like, you're under what passes for adult supervision around here. Go ahead. <laughs> so I poured into a red Solo cup, because that's what we had. <laughs> it was either that or a coffee cup, and I figured that well, the remains of coffee would probably interfere with the palate. I remember thinking that even then. And so I put the thing to my nose, this red solo cup of Chianti, you know, because that's, that's what they do when Frasier is. They put it to their nose and talk about how it smells first. And immediately I'm like, oh, all these terms that they're throwing around, this isn't bullshit. <laughs> this smells like the dirt that I dug out of the campfire earlier to get the campfire ready. This smells like cherries. This smells like... All these different things. All these different things. And I'm like... 
well, that's really weird and interesting and cool. Okay. And how old were you at the time? I was 15. 15. Wow. That's awesome. So I sip it, and immediately I'm really enjoying it. But what really clinched it was that night. That was the first night that Royal Borealis was seen in Arizona in about 80 years. Wow. Wow. And wow, so wow. here I was sitting under the night sky in Seligman, about 20, 30, 40 miles from any major city lights. The only real lights were coming from I-40 in the distance. Well, looking up at the northern lights while sipping my Chianti going... In front of this low burning campfire, oh my gosh. going, fuck, I think I peaked at 15. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, as I like to joke, everything since then has been chasing the dragon. Uh, and it wasn't oh, like a see. fancy high end Chianti, it was just a typical, I mean, it wasn't a fiasco Chianti. That was your epiphany wine. And that was, yeah, the first wine I ever had was an epiphany wine where I'm like, oh, I actually, because I hated, hated growing up the taste of Diamond Tap, which was grape flavored. So since that's the only grape-flavored thing I regularly encountered, my assumption mm -hmm. was that wine was going to taste like that. And so I was very pleasantly surprised to find that I was wrong until I tasted Concord. And then I was like, oh, that's why. <laughs> I have yet to find really a Concord I'd like. But I need to find a good Concord for this podcast because this is such an important grape in American history that I can't just let it hang out and not talk about it. I've got to find one that's cromulent. Um, you should. Yeah. I know years ago at Granite Creek, they made an accidentally sparkling rosé of Concord. Oh, how fun. Um, basically, they bottled it before improperly filtering it, <laughs> it and it fermented again in the bottle. So you can take a bottle with you home. You had to drink it on site. Um, but they don't have it anymore. And uh, there's... I, Almost all their wines I've ever had are horrible. <laughs> so I'm reluctant to go back and be like, oh, no, I don't want to take anything home. I'm sorry. I, I don't think I, I could. To put a, oh, I'm sorry? Do you mind if I step by real quick? I'm going to put a stopper on this. Oh, go ahead. Hey. Yeah, this is delicious. Um, Thank you. I appreciate it. I think that I can, I can do better next year with the acid and pH. That's great now. It really that. is. It's really And nice. it's good. You should be the one to uh, start the uh, category for sparkling next year. I, I tried to submit it, but I didn't do it in time. Mm. But um, Wes, one of the judges of Vino di Sedona, told oh, yeah. me I should resubmit the same one next year. So we'll and you could. We could. Anyway, let's uh, get our Grenache on. Okay. So this is from Page Springs Cellars. Um, they don't even try to claim it's natural. So, um, but they do, they are very low impact farmers and winemakers. So all of their grapes are grown in vineyards that are technically organic, they're just not certified. Um, and their wines, he uses a low, low intervention style, I think is what he yeah. calls it. Yeah. And um, he doesn't use wild yeast on everything, but I know he uses it on some of the wine. Some, and usually the ones that are wild yeast will say wild ferment. Okay. There was a Barbera from Fort Bowie years ago that was so wild. The best way I can describe the flavor profile of that is imagine a Belgian Lambic beer. Oh, yes. Super bready. I didn't like it because I do not like Brett. Um, I actually reviewed it for the blog, and I'm like, you know what? I don't like this. But if you like Belgian beers and Lambics and you like Brett, you will like this. That was how I ended my review. But anyway, 
What does it say? Okay, so that what it says on the label, and you have to forgive me, the label's a little bit torn. I had it in my, I have kind of a, it's a handmade wine cellar. It's made with wood, it's beautiful. Um, I covered it with insulation because it's in my garage in Phoenix, which is 118 right now. So, <laughs> so I want to keep it cool. And um, anyway, it's not really like for a big bottle like this. It's kind of hard to get it in without tearing. These bottles really are difficult for that. Yeah. Yeah, they are. So, so, but I think I can pretty much make out all the words. The lean granite soils of Calibri Vineyard and the relatively cold climate because the vineyard sits at 5,200 feet elevation. I think it may be the highest, the highest vineyard in Arizona. Mm -mm. Oh, there's higher ones? Bruzy is highest. Okay. So produces one. is pretty high too. I'm sorry? Haciampa from Kirkland. Oh, really? How is high it? is Haciampa? Uh, that is a great question. I should know that, shouldn't I? <laughs> I know that Bruzy is at 6,000 feet. Okay, yeah. Or very close. Okay. I could probably pull out uh, Chanel's book and it would probably tell me but so anyway the wine has a granite like minerality with classic red fruits and an herbal spice the wine was whole cluster fermented which when all goes well adds nuance and great complexity this sometimes risky technique has traditionally been used in burgundy great Arizona Grenaches share similar characteristics with Pinot Noir um, which also employs the same method of whole cluster fermentation. So that's what it says on the label. So, but all of his vineyards are organic and sustainable, and that's really, really important to him. And he really, I, he's really an amazing person to work with. Um, one of the things I was really struck by is the way he manages his, I and mean, this is his winery, right? It's got not his name on it, but it might as well have his name on it. So it's his winery. So you'd think he'd be very controlling about the processes. Yeah. And he's really not at all. I mean, people love working for him because he really gives people a lot of free reign. So the wines are all paid spring wines, but there's different assistant winemakers and winemakers involved with all of them that all have the opportunity to express their own opinions and their own ideas. My understanding is right now, as of this recording, the two most important people in the cellar in terms of winemaking are... Uh, Brianna Nation mm -hmm. and uh, Burning Tree Gentleman, Corey Turnbull. Turnbull. Yeah, yeah, which is great. The fact that you said two. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that just is a, it just speaks to his desire to bring a lot of people in. And his wife is just wonderful, Gail. And she um, has put together this whole group called Vine de Fields. And it's women, it's all women. So eventually they're going to have a wine produced by all women. And it's women in the vineyard. I'm and looking it's women so in the winery. forward to that. I know. It's really great. And it'll be, they're going to make a white and a red. And it's going to be a wine that they use as a fundraiser. And they're donating the funds to a woman's um, shelter. Very cool. So, yeah, it's really a great, um, is it natural? I don't know. But it's really got a lot of good things behind it. Uh, he does strive for sustainability, which is one of the pillars of natural wine. In the yeah, I think it's a really important pillar. I think you have a great um, podcast host voice. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, he does. As I like to joke, I've got a voice, a face, and a voice for radio. Absolutely. <laughs> you weren't supposed to agree with me on the face part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. 
Now, I will admit, when it comes to Arizona Grenache, I am exceedingly snobby. That's the only wine I'm really snobby about. You know, I think I used somebody else's corkscrew. This is going to be a little dicey. Is this your corkscrew? Uh, no, it's the house corkscrew. Mm. It doesn't have a joint on it. Yeah, I know. It's that it's was... throwing me for a loop every time, too. Yeah, really I should have gotten my own out. I'm sorry. It was my mistake. Not to get no, it's out. okay. I thought I had mine out, and I can't figure out where it went. Thank you. <laughs> I bought this in 2015, and I've been saving it for a long time because I was really excited about trying a Grenache from Calibri Vineyard. Oh, so this is a 2014 vintage? 2015. Yeah, 2015 vintage. So you're right. Forgive me. I didn't buy it in 2015. It's 2015 vintage. I bought it in 2017. Well, that being said... So I was a wine club member at the time, and you could buy wines before they were out on the market. So... I mean, you bought them to sell her. You didn't buy them to drink right away. Because you knew they were awfully young. Now, that being said, uh, as I said, I'm very snobby when it comes to Arizona Grenache. And that there's only certain vineyards and certain winemakers I like. And basically, the vineyard I like for Grenache in Arizona is pretty much Calibri. Uh, the winemakers are James Callahan and Corey Turnbull. And I think Corey Turnbull was working and Page Springs at this time. Uh, he's been there and back a few into Stronghold a few times, bouncing around. But anyway. Yeah, it's definitely got the minerality. Oh yeah, it's totally Calibri. It's got that white pepper, uh -huh. granite dust mm -hmm. thing. It also has like oxidative qualities to me. Mm -hmm. Similar to the orange wine we were drinking. And I'm happy to see that it's aged well. <laughs> I wouldn't keep it much longer. Yeah, no, this is... I think it's slightly past its peak, probably. Do you? Not that that's a bad thing. I think it still is drinking well. Yeah. This tastes like an actually, like a gourmet hamburger kind of wine. Like, oh, yeah. Like something mushrooms on it. That would be really tasty. There's not much room for error on that. <laughs> well, that was a good one. I could also see this with a pizza. But again, mushrooms are mushrooms, required. Definitely. Mushroom and Italian sausage pizza. Oh, yeah, that would really be tasty. Maybe a little bit of basil on there. Not much. Something just, green. Just yeah. a touch of green. Maybe just dust it on rather than actual. Mm -hmm. So Pippin prefers reds over whites. <laughs> As evidenced by the fact that we all just saw him trying to, and succeeding to steal a sip from my glass. <laughs> Because this is what Pippin likes to do whenever I have red wine. But uh, you should have waited. You could have had a better wine. Well, honestly, better. I guess I don't know how good these next last two are going to be. Well, I think you're going to really enjoy the Oladistery. I, I, this will be actually That's my third really bottle of this that I've had. Is it really? So the first bottle I had on my own. The second one I actually shared with James and Anna. Uh-huh. Uh, down in Sonoida one night. Uh, this will be my third one, and I've loved it all, all the times. All of the times so far. Which is why I'm like, okay, I need to get a second bottle of this. And when you said, oh, I got this out of the stream, I'm like, yes. So this winery, uh, well, we'll get there when we get there. The Page Spring Cellars produces a lot of wines. They're one of the biggest wine producers in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
if not the biggest. Arizona Stronghold might technically be larger in case production, but I don't know how much bigger offhand. Yeah. It's been a while since I've seen the numbers. It also has this really cool tobacco note, like cigar wrapper. That's a really good call. Was this aged in American oak? I don't know, to tell you the truth. It doesn't say on the on the bottle, and it doesn't taste like it was aged necessarily in American oak. Okay, so it doesn't have the little green oak acorn, uh, which means it's not an Arizona oak. Knowing Glomsky's palate preferences, this is almost certainly neutral French oak, uh, with maybe some new French oak staves, or uh, used once staves, would be my guess. Does he use staves? He uses staves and barrels. Okay. Um, he will use staves in neutral barrels to get the requisite oak, mm -hmm. but also he will use newer barrels with some vintages. Yeah, it's really tasty. Okay, are we ready for rune wines? And this is the Calibri Cunoise. Cunoise. I'm excited for that. Yeah. Would you like me to open it for you? The high desert clearing is silent and still and the delicate movements of its inhabitants do not disrupt the tranquility. Their drowsy lashes and liquid brown eyes hide the tension beneath. The snap of a branch or a flock of birds bursting through the boughs above may send them bottling, or bolting, forgive me. They send them <laughs> bolting. I was like, why are we suddenly bottling? Okay, we'll send them bolting. But for now, the small family is at peace. And on the front of the label is a beautiful illustration of deer. Technically, those are coos uh, deer, uh -huh. uh, which is a variety of uh, white-tailed deer that's found only in southeastern Arizona. You can tell they're not mule deer because their ears are small. I'll pass this to you to open, uh, or you're fine. Much better. <laughs> I'm excited to try this one. Yeah, I am too. So, do you know much about this grape? Oh, a little. Can you tell us what you know? Should we, can we open the wine folly? We Is can. It? Well, actually, it's almost certainly going to be in uh, a better description in uh, Robinson. Because uh, to my knowledge, it's not listed uh, in wine folly. Because she, uh, Madeline, tends to focus more on the most, tends to, on uh, the more common of commonly available grapes. Yep. Ah, not in here. It would be after Cremont. I've got it. Can I see that cork as well? There we go. This is a Cunoise de Cunoise. Did I pronounce it right? Cunoise, yes. Cunoise is a minor but valued southern Roman green, occasionally varietal. It's an old variety from southern France, cultivated mainly in the southern Rome where it was mentioned as early as 1626 in Avignon. It belongs to the peak pool, mid to late ripening and well suited to hot stony slopes. Can you say Arizona? Yep. Yeah. No wonder he picked Cunois. Tends to be more productive in alternate years, which is kind of interesting. It's recommended around the Southern Rhone in France 
and it's permitted in appellations like Chateauneuf du Pop, Côtes du Rhône Villages, Gigondas, Côtes du Ai, and Provence and Ventoux. In older vineyards, it is often mixed with the lesser Aubonne. Although it is one of the less used varieties in the Chateauneuf du Pop blend, producers such as Chateau de Beaucastel and Domaine de Pagou, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. I think, uh, isn't it Pegu? Pegu, that could be right. Do include it. Wines have moderate alcohol and tannins and are generally fruity but pale, which is exactly what we see in this wine. Tablas Creek also has planted it, so it's grown in Paso Robles, and there's limited plantings in Washington State as well. And... And, and I think also on House Mountain um, Vineyard in Arizona as yeah. well as uh, Autumn Sage also has it. Very light and bright. Now this is a little bit older and my wine refrigerator at home that I put my reds in is um, kind of a little on the warmer side. It's usually cool to about 58 to 60 degrees. And it's been there quite a while so it's why it's kind of a little bit orange in appearance. But it definitely has that white pepper note you were talking about. It does, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just that like is the totally other flavoring. That is so interesting that just one vineyard can have such a distinctive. Do you guys like it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I shouldn't have jumped out and said I thought it was delicious before asking you what you thought. Forgive me. Hey, now, <laughs> wine is entirely subjective, and that's one of the beautiful things about wine. It is. It's very true. It, it brings forth conversation in a weird that beer doesn't. The only other alcohols I've found that really can bring up that conversation are some whiskeys and scotches. Uh, for most part, everything else is, oh yeah, this is... Mezcal as well. That's true, I'm, and I'm not super familiar with mezcal. I need to become more familiar with it. I just really enjoy Cunois, and this one's got a really nice earthy character to it, too. It's opening up nicely as well. Yeah, it's just so interesting to me that these are two different wines made by two different winemakers, and yet they're so similar. It's similar to like Gamay and Pinot Noir in terms of tannins, tannic structure. It's just not too tannic, and mm -hmm. it just goes down nicely. Which yeah. again is why I have often, okay, mostly to myself, but have maintained that Grenache should not be considered Arizona's Pinot Noir analog. Uh, I think that analog would really be best taken by Cunois. I think Cunois, to me, is more Pinot-like in Arizona than Grenache is. I could even see it potentially like tasting this in a blind tasting and going down the wrong rabbit hole and thinking, I think this is a, a burgundy of some kind. Mm -hmm. Or maybe at least Cru Beaujolais or, or Beaujolais. And again, it has I a very Cru Burgundian I love character. Cru Beaujolais oh, well. fuck yeah, so do I. That's a Morgon conclusion. <laughs> Actually, Morgone is one of my favorite. Oh, it's my favorite, hands down. It's my favorite. Marcel appears Morgone. Yeah. Let me see if I have a photo of it. Yeah, Morgone is is my favorite crew of Beaujolais by far. This is Morgone from Marcel Lapierre. <sighs> that is one of the best crew Beaujolais. Also, for the record, I love the fact that you're using an Ehrenmeyer flask as a decanter. Not bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have actually thought about getting a, a set of Ehrenmeyer flasks as decanters myself. But the, pro the problem with that is that it's cheaper to buy actual decanters. <laughs> it's true, right? You can buy those on Amazon for less than like a fancy decanter. 
That's true. I was mostly thinking of in person. So I try to avoid giving my money to Bezos whenever I can. But... Because all he's going to do is just go to space with it. Yeah, do you want to take them? Hold on. Pippin, come on. Do not taunt the natural winemaker. This is Aspiring. not wise. You have made a natural wine, which is more than the either of us can say about ourselves, so therefore you are the natural winemaker of this group. <laughs> <laughs> Stay humble and keep trying. Absolutely. <laughs> the point is, you have done more in your trying than either of us have, so... Yeah, that's right, Pippin. Yeah, Kunwaz is, is one of my twenty top 20 favorite varietals. It's not in my top 10, uh-huh. I don't think. But I'm also very hard-pressed to come up with a top 10. But it's definitely in my top 20. Well, I'm really glad that people are stepping up to make a single varietal Kunwa. Because I think it's really fun to taste. I think it'll be really fun to pair with foods. What would you guys pair this wine with? What do you think? My immediate thought is Thanksgiving turkey. That That's actually yeah, brilliant. Just like, just like a Beaujolais or a burger. Mm-hmm. Or we could combine the best of both worlds and do a turkey burger. Mm. I think we have a winner. Turkey burger with pickle, uh, mushroom, blue cheese, and bacon. Real bacon, not turkey bacon. I'm actually going vegetarian the... with this one. Okay. I'm thinking of mushrooms would be really tasty with it. Um, another one that would be tasty is I make a vegetarian dish. It's basically hummus with kale, and you kind of saute the kale a little bit with olive oil and salt and pepper and stuff like that. Put it all together. I think it would go really well with that, too. Uh-oh. And I think that's one of the oh, things. Oh, I doesn't bite me. Oh. <laughs> we will see. Oh, we will see. That's not encouraging. Well, <laughs> sometimes he will just be fascinated in preen hair. Other times he will, of course, as you know, attack people's ears for no reason. He's backing away from your fingers. He doesn't like it. Doesn't like the fingers. When you do that again, try saying step up. Step up? Yeah. But first give that picture. Fascinating. Yes. The, 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 there is never a question of whether the, the Pippin wants the wine. Well, <laughs> Pippin has good taste because I could drink this wine all night long. Mm-hmm. I need to drink my bottle of this soon, although I think this has still got another year or two. Yeah. Versus your Grenache. Good job, Pippin. But the, the problem is that I just need to drink my bottles faster and. My problem is I have an intense, if I drink this bottle, then I can't share it or I can't drink it later thing. And so I end up staring at my cellar and my stash kind of blankly and either going, okay, I guess I'm having whiskey or I just say, well, I guess I'm having water (laughs) because I can't decide. There's so much to choose from. So many delicious wines in the world and so little time. I know. I wish I could have my friends over multiple nights a week and then we could actually dent, go a a really good dent into, okay, one sip is enough. Come on. 
Pippin. Shut up. Good boy. It's a good boy. Well, he doesn't hate me anymore. That's good. Okay, so the last one we have is from Georgia, not the, the state. state, the country in Eastern Europe. And this is... So, oh my God, that would be... If I had a vineyard in Georgia, I would plant only Georgian varietals just to screw with people. <laughs> it's like, this is our Ketzatelli, this is our Aldosturi, this is our Saparavi, this is our Mitzvani. It's from Dalanega AVA. Do you know how many varietals are grown in Georgia? 500. <laughs> yeah. 500. That's more than Italy. Yeah. Italy's only got 300 something. I thought that was huge. Yeah. I thought Italy had more than 1,000 and that most of them can never be counted. Oh, interesting. That's, that's I heard, well, I, 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 Jancis Robinson's my hero and she said it was 385, I think was the number, something around that territory. So close to 400. And Gilsom, have you have you give a membership of Gilsom? They have yeah. like an episode where a guy talks about if someone spent their whole life trying to study Italian varietals, they couldn't find them all because there's so wow. many varietals that aren't even listed. Wow! I mean, that wouldn't oh, surprise wow. me. I, I would say Italy and uh, I'm sure Georgia Georgia's like the, the, the words. Uh, Georgia is kind of like that too, and of course Georgia is kind of the, the heartland of the origin of wine that in Armenia and Azerbaijan, that whole area of the Caucasus. If you like Georgian wine, there's a restaurant in Phoenix and Tempe called Cafe Boa. Oh, I've heard fun. good things about that. And uh, they made a trip to Georgia just to meet a bunch of winemakers and get palates sent to them. Oh, how fun. So they have probably the largest selection of Georgian wines, most of them are aged in Quevery. And Quevery is different than Amphora, where it's a specific soil type used and found in Georgia that they're using to make it with. And this is a Quevery, or Quevery. Quevery? Is that how you say it? Quevery. Quevery. So this is a quev um, Quevery aged. I'm sorry, the cork was a little dicey, and I w I'm going to have to take a second pass. That's okay. Give me a moment. And if this bottle unfortunately happens to be corked, I'm pretty sure I've got my oldest story here. Okay. <laughs> if not, I have at least three or four other very aged Georgian wines here. Well, it could just be that the cork fell apart. It yeah, that's more likely. <laughs> that is more likely. Like in good shape. Um, I like to joke that I probably got the, the greatest stash of Georgian wine in northern Arizona. Okay. Whether this is true or not, I don't know, but... Uh, I definitely have quite a few. And I love that the bottle is numbered. We're drinking bottle number 1,431 out of 28 <laughs> bottles. It's even signed by the I'm excited for this one. Yeah. So you should be. for last, right? Yeah. And the varietals in these, is it a blend? It's it is 100% of that varietal. A la Mm-hmm. Well, that smells gamey. Hey, little fellow. Come on. I think he's a little buzzed now, so he's friendly. Yeah. <laughs> when he gets drunk, he can be... He will get... Ex excuse me. He likes the Georgian court. Oh, yeah. This is like an amazing array of aromas. I also love this color. I think it's aging pretty quickly, which is, is that typical of natural wines? Because this was 2018. I mean, it all depends on the SO2 concentration, free and total, for mm -hmm. 
longevity, but I think this is... But also, easy. this is a lighter red. In terms of pigmentation, uh, it's almost like a Pinot Grigio color grape. Um, so most so, of... Yeah, you won't be able to tell sometimes with a uh, root variation or whatever, if that's what you're looking for in yeah. terms of age. Yeah. But anyway... Because um, it's only three years old. It's awfully orange for a white that's three years old. But also, the thing to remember is uh, this is a very, very light red varietal. Again, almost like... I imagine this would probably be classified as a pink varietal. What does Gensis Robinson say? Um, she... This wine, it's very short. She doesn't have a lot to say. It's a minor Georgian variety responsible for alcoholic reds. So let's see what the alcoholic, oh, it's only 11% alcohol, so I wouldn't call it alcoholic. It originates from the Guria region on the Black Sea in Western Georgia. It's largely relatively compact bunches of very large to medium sized berries. It's vigorous, early budding and late ripening. Not a good grape for Arizona, but that's okay because it doesn't grow here. It, only, it grows in Georgia, and my understanding is it's only grown in Georgia. I don't think it's been released anywhere else. Um, it's planted mainly in the Imereti region in central western Georgia. It produces wines, it said typically high in alcohol and moderate in color, which is def this is definitely a moderate in color, and it's often made as a rosé. I almost bought an Elvis Story pet nap when I was in uh, DC, and they had one, but uh, I didn't, and it's good because I was running out of space. Yeah, apparently this is usually blended. I'm really glad that this winery made this as a single varietal so that we could really enjoy it and get to know this grape. There were a whopping 109 acres planted in Georgia. Yeah, that's not a common grape. <laughs> you can taste the earthiness from the quebri aging. Yeah? It's a lot earthier, yeah because it's clay, mm -hmm. so it's aged in amphora, mm -hmm. but you get more of that earthy qualities that you wouldn't get if this was stainless steel aged or oak aged. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's got a beautiful aroma. I mean, I just keep, I haven't honestly even sipped it yet. I'm too busy smelling it because there's so many things, flowers and herbs and, you know, the, the earthiness and, oh gosh, this is just beautiful. Mm. And it's even more delicious on the palate. It's definitely a special wine. Yeah. I think it's a savory style wine. Uh-huh. I get more savory herbs yeah. than I do fruit. And it's like old world wines are not as fruit forward. Uh-huh. So the fruit are there. They're just a little bit more um, hidden. But mm -hmm. the herbs and the earthiness from the quivery are definitely yeah. like predominant. Mm -hmm. It's got a little um, almost sweet and sour kind of taste on the back palate. I don't know if you're... Picking up no, it definitely has yeah. that sort of sweet and sour umami thing going on. But uh, yeah, the first time I had this, I was like, wow, this is phenomenal. I need to get a second bottle. And then I shared it with James, and Anna really liked it. James was like, eh, has a little bit of it. Yeah. But he had his winemaker brain turned on. Could be. It is, I mean, it's really unique. You would never make a wine like this in Arizona. No. I mean, I smell and can taste a slight amount of VA, which is volatile acidity. Uh -huh. That was what he was saying, talking about in poo-pooing. But I, it? as an into natural wine, volatile acidity in this amount is actually refreshing, and I like it. Yeah. And I've had some natural wines where the VA has been, dear God. So let me tell you about the worst natural wine I've ever had. I don't remember the winery offhand. Uh, it was a Marzamino. I got it on primalwine.com. Primal wine, nice. 
Yeah, that's um, a great resource to buy natural wine online. Uh, it was a Marzamino. I had a creepy, creepy man who looked like a creepy lumberjack and a creepy smile on it. I never tried Marzamino, and I have been trying to find a Marzamino to find taste for years because I like opera, and that's one of the few wines mentioned specifically by name in one of Mozart operas. Oh, how interesting. Basically, it's the wine that he has before he goes into hell. He's like, oh, well, I must have a glass of, you know, the best wine in the world before I go down to hell or something. I, I don't remember all of it. So I was like, cool. I, even though this label is really, really, really creepy, I'm going to go. And, and I'm going to get this bottle. And I shared it with Adam, uh, Megan, Gary, and I. And it was so overwhelmingly bready. It was just like, all we could taste is bread and VA. There is no fruit, no herbaceousness, no tannins, no nothing. We all hated it with a passion. It's like, really? The, the creepy... <laughs> Gary was like, really? The creepy lumberjack didn't clue you in not to get this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was from a, a winemaker again in, in northern Italy, which is where Marzamino comes from. And uh, I was very disappointed because I'm like, this is not what I was expecting. Uh, alternately, this, uh, as the comment I made on it is like, I don't know what that opera was talking about. This is the wine that would send you to hell if you drank it. <laughs> so much VA, it's like undrinkable. Right? Yeah, not combined with so much bread, that enough bread to stun a racehorse. And I didn't know whether it was a bottle variation thing or a, a, or a, something else, or just the, the style of winemaking, but it's like, mm, I'm not gonna get a second bottle to talk about. And, you know, it's, it's a risk. You know, you run when you're shipping and, and the warmer times of the year, which could have done it. Some winemakers uh, in California won't ship their direct-to-consumer wines in the summer. Yeah. And uh, I admit that when I ordered this, the case that I ordered it with, was a half case, as I ordered six bottles, was cutting it really close to the too hot temperature mark. But uh, the other wines I've had from that case have turned out okay or great. Uh, like the uh, Dinos to Diamonds from Ruth Lindowski and... Yeah. Do you have access to the Ruth Lindowski? Natural Wine Co. distributes that wine. Okay. So in other words, I'm never going to see it anywhere in Arizona. No, they are in okay. Arizona. They're a distributor in Arizona. So you can buy it probably at Hidden Track if you ask Craig. Okay. But I've seen it at Sauvage Bottle Shop. Which okay, is I need to visit well. Sauvage. You should. But uh, that I actually recorded a podcast with that with a friend of mine who's a paleontologist. Oh, how fun. Um, and it was very short. Uh, we were pounding it on the beach between looking for fossil shark teeth. <laughs> so it, it's a very non non what's the word I'm looking for not much discussion based about the wine because <laughs> we, we ended up enjoying it too much and pounded it because also we didn't have wine glasses and he was using a, a basically a, a stout glass for it and it was poundable so it, I guess that would qualify as a glau glau yeah there you go now that I know what that term Glue, glue. <laughs> glue, glue. Excuse me. My French has always been atrocious. Well, this was a treat. This was really a well, treat. Let's cheers. 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 Let's make America and Georgia grape again. Absolutely. And of course, that makes it sound like it's over. You're welcome. This was an episode of the Make America Grape Again podcast, sponsored, produced, and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona wine monk. You can reach us at Make America Grape Podcast at gmail.com, on Instagram at, at the AZ Wine Monk, or on Twitter at CV Burkett. Be sure to also check out our website, 
makeamericagreatagainpodcast.com. Pippin, no. You've had enough. Pippin, no. You've had enough. God darn it. I think your little bird's going to get a little tipsy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He enjoys it. He does love his wine. A little lush. He is feeling funny.